She did a great job, didn't she? Thank you for serving us in that way, Chantilly. We appreciate it. It's our privilege. Oh, there's an outline there to, I hope, help you and for you to take notes if you would like. We've been looking at the book of Judges and we saw last week from chapter 3 that this book is graphic and yet this is a book that's in the Bible. Back in chapter 3, we met three characters in uh, three judges. But this week in chapter 4, we're going to meet three characters in the one story. And that's how we're going to engage in this chapter this afternoon. We're going to look at these characters. You can see them down there on your outline. But I must warn you, it is a dark story. And it's disturbing. At first, we are introduced to Deborah. We're introduced to Deborah there in verse 4, if you want to open up your Bibles. And Deborah is this unequivocally positive character. She's a bright light in dark days in the book of Judges, and she's involved in the service of the people of God. She's actually serving the people of God before God raises up a judge. And we find there in verses 4 and 5 that she has this judicial role. It seems like she acts as the national high court when a problem's too big for anyone else. They bring it to Deborah and she sorts it out. She resolves the disputes. Deborah is also, and perhaps more importantly, a prophetess. She's introduced first in that way. Deborah was a prophetess. And it seems as though she combines these roles somewhat of definitely prophet and also judge. Wisdom and speaking God's word. And maybe there's a connection between those two. She's wise because God speaks to her. We know from the Old Testament the first and greatest prophet was Moses. And there were prophets that came after him in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In fact, God says that he's going to raise up other prophets after him. And he says in Deuteronomy 18, you know the way you can tell between the real deal prophet and a dodgy prophet? Do you know how you can tell? Does anyone know what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the way you can tell the real thing from the fake thing? Yeah. A true prophet, their words come true. And just keep that in the back of your mind as we look at Judges chapter 4. Because this woman, Deborah, is a true prophet. Now, when we come across the, um, the character of Deborah, often the issue of women's leadership comes up. It comes into people's minds. Um, all of Israel coming to her for advice in there in verse 5. And depending on your background, your church background or your own experience, uh, you can react in one of two ways normally. You can think that, well, this is the exception that proves the rule. That is, that uh, Israel is so bad that Deborah has to exercise this ministry. Or secondly, often we respond in the way that, well, w what's going on here is that the Bible's critiquing a patriarchal society. And so you have two different readings. There's the, if we like, the traditionalist reading, which sees what's going on here is this, look, these men have just abdicated their responsibility and this is how bad things are. 
And secondly, there's a more progressive, a liberal reading, which says um, what's going on here with Deborah is that she's undermining and subverting the uh, misogynistic view that existed within Israel. And so here's a model for women in leadership. But I don't think either of those two alternatives are what we see here in Judges chapter 4. I think it's true in part that these are certainly dark days and this whole chapter is a critique of men's evil. A really excellent commentator in the book of Judges, Daniel Block says this, that the, that the Judges narrator deliberately highlights the initiatives and power of female participants while humiliating the male characters. There is, it's clear that this is a unique and low point in Israel's history. But then to conclude, just because this is a low point in Israel's history, that Deborah is in this role, that that is the reason that Deborah is in this role, is not something that's obvious in Judges chapter 4. That's an inference, but it's not the point that Judges chapter 4 makes. Additionally, what is very clear is that Deborah isn't grabbing for power. She's not trying to climb the hierarchical role in Israel to get her kind of position of authority. No, she's been given this role by God. She's been raised up by God and God expects Israel to listen to her. Although relatively rare, we do have other examples of female prophets in the Old Testament. Can anyone think of a female prophet from the Old Testament? got Miriam in Exodus 15, we've got Holder in Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, and we've got Nodia in Nehemiah chapter 6. And so we do see that God does raise up uh, female prophets. And in the Old Testament, there were really three significant jobs in Israel, prophet, king, and priest. And we have examples here, obviously, of a female prophet. We have examples of female leaders. Deborah is in part leading the nation of Israel. Um, we ha even have a, a, the Queen of Sheba, who is applauded uh, in the Samuel narratives. But in the whole Old Testament, we never have a female priest. And in fact, not all men could be priests. Only men from the line of Aaron could be a priest. Now, did this make those uh, in the line of Aaron who were priests better than those who couldn't be priests, those from Benjamin? No. And so I think what we see here is the framework in the Old Testament for what the New Testament builds upon. I don't think this means um, at the same time men and women can, can perform any role or have any responsibility without distinction. I don't think that because of the office of priest in the Old Testament and the way in which the New Testament speaks um, about particular roles. Paul does rest restrict certain teaching to men. However, we see in the New Testament that all women can speak and can have this privilege of being a prophet. This isn't something just restricted to Deborah in the Old Testament. This is something not restricted just to men in the New Testament. This is a privilege that all Christian people can um, 
can have the privilege of participating in. And that's why we had that reading from Luke chapter 23, because we see the dignity that the New Testament in another way gives women, and that is that the first witnesses to the resurrection, the most momentous moment in Christian history, is given to women, for which the men, when they first hear, don't believe. And so, as important as women have a place and role in the life of the church, Judges chapter 4 isn't about that. Judges chapter 4 is about something a lot uh, larger. And we see that uh, in point 2 with Jabin and his, and, uh, his general there in verses 1 to 3 because as we've seen time and time again, we've set this up in the last couple of weeks, the people rebel. Israel, we can't believe it, does it again. And so God raises up a foreign king over Israel and he rules over them and this king Jabin has this devastating right-hand man. He is, well, there's two things we need to know about Sisera. Firstly, he is powerful. He has chariots of iron there in verse 3. 900 chariots of iron. And these chariots of iron are are high-tech weapon systems. Uh, There's no ox goad as we saw back in Shamgar at the end of chapter 3, basically a sharpened walking stick. Now these are serious pieces of military equipment. And they, they were iron. I mean, people had timber chariots, but these were iron chariots. You know, up until the 1950s, even some cars had timber frames. The, the, the MG, the MG has a timber frame, was made in the 1950s. Well, this is iron or iron-clad chariots from the ancient world. This is high-tech weapons of mass destruction here. And imagine lining 900 of them up. Imagine heading down in the valley and seeing this onslaught of military hardware just looking at you as that metal glistens in the sun. First thing we know about Sisera, he is powerful. The second thing we know about Sisera is he is cruel. He's a pit bull for his king. And this is epitomised in the next chapter, in chapter 5, verse 30, which we'll look at more next week. This is a man that knows how to enjoy the spoils of war. And what are the spoils for him? In chapter 5, verse 30, if you flick over, you see it's a womb or two for every man. That's what Sisera does to his captives. It's not simply the economic oppression, as we concentrated on last week, with Eglon making himself fat off the spoils of Israel. This is a cruel man who exercised horrid defilement of the people of Israel and he has been doing this to the people of Israel for 20 years and after 20 years the people of Israel are starting to cry out to God and he answers them he hears their cry and here is his answer to their cry Well, it's Captain Lightning there in verse 6, Barak. That's what his name means. Barak just means lightning. Here's what Israel needs, a powerful force from heaven to take on these enemy chariots. 
And in verses 6 and 7, Deborah summons Barak and she gives him this instruction. She says, look, what you need to do is go and gather the tribes and meet at this river Kishon. And there she says through, or God says through Deborah, I will give Sisera into your hand. And how does Barak respond? Well, he could have responded, look, that's a clear word from God. I uh, just got to gather the troops, meet here, victory, all taken care of. But at the same time, we have to feel what it's like to be Barak. Uh, we know the end of the story, and so in some ways, uh, it's hard for us to feel, fe- to, uh, feel this. But Sisera is a fearsome and powerful foe. And, you know, sometimes... Like, it may have been that the oppression could be more tolerable than the repercussions of trying to rebel against it. This is a literal suicide mission to line up against 900 chariots for the people of Israel. And this is the tension that the people of God have been living in. Ever since they got into this so-called land of milk and honey, God was with them. God was with them back in chapter 1, as we saw in verse 20. Uh, verse 19, we came across a phrase that they could not drive out the inhabitants. They could not or they would not. How does Barak respond to Deborah? He says, yeah, look, I'll go if you come with me, please. Barak wants assurance by beyond God's word. And I don't think as some um, readings of this are, I don't think this is positive. I don't think he wants God, you know, kind of to be with him and therefore he takes... No, I think it's worse than that. I don't think taking a prophet into battle is a bad thing, but I think the issue for Barak is that he wants assurance beyond what God has said to him, beyond God's word. We've seen this before in the Old Testament. We saw this with Moses. And in a couple of weeks we'll see it with Gideon, that he wants assurance beyond God's word. See, Barak wants assurance beyond God's clear word, but what, ends up, what it ends up being is a conditional obedience. God, I will go if you. A conditional obedience that I think we are all too familiar with. When I get a little more settled in my life, a little more established, a little older, then obedience in the Christian life, will be a lot easier. Can you believe that if you're a little older? That's what younger people think. They think that, you know, when you're older, it'll get so much easier. And I know for some of you who have been Christian for a very long time, you think sometimes, you know, obedience would be so much easier if you hadn't seen what I've seen or you hadn't been through what I've been through. See, so often our obedience to God is conditional. If you could just fix up the circumstances, then it would happen. If you could take the temptation away, if you do this, then I can do that. That's how Barak responds. But how does God respond to Barak? Verse 9, I will go with you, is what God says through Deborah. God responds through Deborah in mercy. He didn't deserve that. God told him he will get it done. He's laying conditions against the God of the universe. But God is a God of mercy. Firstly, in raising up Barak. And secondly, in using 
a guy like Barak. See, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But God's mercy does come with a cost. Did you notice that in verse 9? There's an intriguing and very important verse at, uh, there in verse 9, the second section there in verse 9. It's, this is so important for the whole of this story because it says there, um, but because of the way you are going about this, the honour will not be yours for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. See, in other words, God's saying you're not going to experience in full measure my work in your life in the way that you could. God is wanting to work in Barak's life. He's given his word. But God is more willing to work than Barak is to obey. And there's a principle here for us. While obedience is never a condition of God's favour, obedience is often a condition of us being able to participate in what God is doing. What Barak does, and I think what we do, is we so often sell ourselves short. There was this um, great American preacher, read a lot of biography when I was at Bible college, this great American preacher in the 19th century, D.L. Moody, and he said this, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man or a woman who is fully devoted to him. The world is yet to see what God would do with a person fully, fully devoted to him. Barak's first opportunity is conditional, but his second time is not. Because have a look at there in verse 10. Captain Lightning eventually kicks into action. He gathers the tribes of Israel, particularly those up in the north, and they are arrayed for battle up there in the uh, north near the Sea of Galilee. And this second word is given to Barak, and it's not Deborah with him that counts, but who goes before him. God says through Deborah, go, literally up. This day is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone before you? And how does he respond this second time? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. Have you ever looked back at your life? You know, in retrospect, you've seen something that you knew at first was just so massive. Often when something is new... Um, it's, it becomes so massive, so large in our minds. It appears so impenetrable at the time. Something like, you know, just, just committing yourselves to church. Something like picking up and reading the Bible for yourself. Even praying. Can, th- these things at first can just seem like very massive things, confessing your sin to a brother or a sister. But after, after God in his patience allows you to start reading his word, to commit yourself to his people, to confess your sin, to pray these very things that you thought were massive big blocks in your road become massive big blessings. And you think, why was I so slow to do that? Why did I make it such a big thing why didn't i obey the first time the world is yet to see what god will do with a person fully devoted him to him how can we respond like the second barak and not the first how can we respond in faith well 
we need to do what Barak should have done. Barak should have looked back. He should have seen what God had done. This was no fluke that was before, potential fluke that was before Barak. God had been at work powerfully in the nation of Israel. When you think enemy coming, chariots there, what do you think in the Old Testament? Egypt. God's done this before. And we know Joshua faced, guess what, another king. And guess what his name was? Jabin, king of Hazel, in another valley, in Joshua chapter 11. See, Barak should have remembered what God had done in the past. And same for us. We need to look back to what God has done in the past. And we've got so much more even than the exodus as chariots are washed away in water. We've got so much more than Joshua's victory. We look back to the cross of the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also along with the son graciously give us all things? See, we look back to the cross. We look back to what God gave us. God has put it all on the table before us, brothers and sisters. He's put it all over like cards. We can see the cards. And in the New Testament, he's turned those cards over. He's shown in full extent his plan and his character. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through what means? Through, through the prophets. But God, in these last days has spoken to us through his son. God's spoken through the prophet Deborah and Barak was slow to obey. But God has spoken finally and fully through the Lord Jesus Christ and what are we slow to do? We're so slow to obey. I've reread this chapter a number of times this week, and each time Barak has kind of jumped out to me as irritatingly weak, slow, and pathetic. And yet, what's obvious is that we're just like Barak. We're the ones who have even more than Barak, and we're the ones who are weak, slow, and pathetic. See, faith looks back, but faith also looks forward because, just like most guys, he takes a bit of time to wind up Barak, but once he's going, he's going there in verse 15. It says, Barak advanced and the Lord routed or overpowered Sisera. Barak's faithfulness is in advance. God uses his faithfulness to overpower Sisera. And how were they able to do this? Against those 900 chariots? Judges chapter 5, which we'll look at next week. We have this song that reflects on what God has done in this chapter 4. And we have in verses 21, uh, 20 to 21, we have this um, mention that, that, in fact, what happened was rain came down. And these chariots, with all their iron glistening in the sun, these chariots were weighed down in that clay valley. And as the rain came, these weapons of mass destruction became death traps for those that were in them. 
And so this was no local battle. This was a cosmic war that God was engaged in to save Israel. And in verse 15, the, the text is quite sparse, but we're given the details of this great leader, Sisera. You can see him there, um, <clears throat> almost if you had a before and after, so proud on his chariot with all these men before him. But there in verse 15, we're given the details of his dismount. He's legging it. He's right out of there. He was once his mighty, powerful general, but now he's his cowardly private. And it picks it up again in verse 17. It's labouring the put point. Here he is running, running pathetically away from the battle, running to safety. Well, not really. He's running to a Uma Thurman type character. If Judges was a Quentin Tarantino movie, he's running to JL, this feminine fatale. She's strong. She's resourceful. She's cunning and she's not afraid to use her powers of seduction. We learn two things about JL. Firstly, she has a husband and secondly, that her husband is separated from the Kenites who were allied with Israel. Her husband's a turncoat. And so, Jael, and so uh, Sisera, as he leaves the battle, as he sees the tent of an ally, he sees his refuge. He sees his safety. And those words in verse 9 kick back in. The Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. We thought it might have been Deborah, this great leader of God's people, but now... We're drawn in because how is this going to work? This is not a balanced encounter. This is a, a, a power imbalance. Here you have Sisera, this mighty warrior. And in verse 18, being met by this domestic woman instead of a husband going out to meet this warrior, Jael goes, don't be afraid, she says. Afraid of what? She's just a woman. Why, why, why would this mighty warrior be afraid of this woman? Or is it her husband that he's not to be afraid of? We don't know. She says, turn aside, turn aside to me. This is an encounter that is charged with a sense of intimacy um, for those who are old enough to understand that. And this tired warrior enters her tent. He enters her tent without her husband. And there she covers him with a, a rug, the ASL translates it, but it's very difficult to work out what that means. What is clear is she's showing a hospitality of, of sorts. Uh, he requests a water, water, perhaps dehydrated from the battle, but she responds and gives him the top shelf stuff, the goat's milk. He's exhausted from battle with a tummy full of beautiful goat's curd and he drifts off peacefully to sleep, never to wake again. There he sleeps and she repurposes these domestic appliances to kill the man who has killed thousand. She drives probably a wooden stake into his temple, possibly his mouth, into the ground. The stake goes into the ground as if it was necessary to say that a stake through the head was enough, but into the ground, into the ground is the detail because this is not a man that a woman can take any chances with. 
This is a man who has led a chorus of men in the spoils of military victory, a womb or two for every man, not a woman or two, but simply reduced to a womb or two for every man. He is a man who has dehumanised and taken advantage of women and now he has been dehumanised and taken advantage of by a woman. Over in chapter 5, verse 27, between her feet where he lay, we're told, where so many of his victims fell, now he falls. This punishment is carefully calibrated to fit the crime. In verse 20, just previous to his death, he told her, look, if someone comes along, tell them, literally, verse 20, that there is no man in here, in this tent. That's right. There's no man in here now. There's no man. It's a graphic story. It's a twisted story. And for all our very nice homes, clothes, families, this is still a very graphic and twisted world. Some of us have felt this. Some of us have felt the pain of what it is to be a victim of evil at a person like a Sisera. And I don't know why God lets that happen. I don't know why God allows people to encounter such evil and to be abused in such ways. I don't know why he doesn't just judge those sins immediately, but here is what I do know, that God is not indifferent to any person, to any person's pain, to any victim. He's not indifferent to the very darkest of what humans are capable of. He knows, he sees, and he loves. Can you believe this? Can you believe that God has sent his one and only son into this kind of twisted, dark world? And can you believe that his son went willingly into our kind of world? That he experienced those dark kinds of places and he did that with us such that he might bring us to that other side in healing. And there is a judgment coming, this passage reminds us. There is a judgment coming against all the darkness that occurs in our world and on that last and final day, God will make all things right. This is great comfort for those of us who are victims. And yet, this is frightening because all of us are perpetrators of evil of some kind. All of us, not just men, but women too. Sisera's mother in chapter 5 waits for her embroidered spoil of war taken from the victims of Sisera's rape. And God sees. He sees everything. And everything one day hidden will be revealed. He knows. And one day he will right all wrongs. And he'll right all your wrongs. And that will mean our sins will catch up with us. And yet the same is true. He loves us. He loves the victim, for there is healing. 
And remarkably, the gospel tells us that he loves even perpetrators of evil because there is forgiveness. It is when we were enemies, the gospel tells us that Christ died. See, this story ends not with JL's victory, not with Deborah's wisdom, not with Barak's eventually got their contribution, but this story ends with God's victory. It ends with Sisera's humiliation, but also Barak's. Barak enters the tent there at the very end and he sees the man he should have killed, who has been killed by the hand of a woman, a woman who did not hesitate unlike him. And there is a picture of his disobedience as Sisera lies dead, but also a picture of God's graciousness because on that day God subdued Jabin. D.L. Moody said, the world is yet to see what God will do with a person fully devoted to him. But is that really true? Because we've started to see what God will do with a man fully devoted to him. We've started to see in his death. We've started to see a picture of our disobedience and his graciousness, his glory and not ours. One man who is fully devoted to his father, the great prophet, a light who has shined in the darkness, the one who is faithful even to the point of death, there as he hung, he defeated God's enemies. And whether you are victim or perpetrator of evil, if you go to his tent, if you go to his tabernacle, even if you are his enemy, if you run to him and take shelter in his tabernacle, he he will cover you with his own blood and his own body and you'll be safe. So run to him. Amen. We're going to sing.